Thank you for tuning in to Starkey Multifamily Podcast. If you can, please take a moment to like, subscribe, and share my content. I am extremely excited for my guest today. He has just recently, uh, in July of 2019, completed his first major full cycle transition transaction. Uh, he is the co-founder of 10X Apartment Investing and Franchise Mastery on Facebook, which is a extremely active group. I really recommend you check that out. He's co-founder of Obsidian Capital, and by the age of 23, he has acquired over 500 apartment units worth nearly $40 million. So please welcome David Tupin. David, how are you? I'm doing great, man. Doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thanks for coming. I really appreciate you taking the time. So David, I really want to talk about your first major, uh, the 96-unit full cycle uh, transaction. I know it went a lot quicker than you anticipated, which is awesome. Uh, so let's, let's start by the beginning. How did you get into it and you know, what, what happened there? Yeah, so I had acquired about 24 units at that point. I think I'd done two 12 unit syndications and uh, I was sending out some mailers. I sent one out to um, a group of uh, 100 plus you know, around me, like 80 plus unit owners in the Metro Detroit area in Michigan. And uh, a guy called me back, who's a big uh, local owner developer uh, in Michigan. And he's about 70 years old. He had built this property 40 years ago uh, in 79. And um, he called me and we just kind of built a good relationship. And he liked me and he, he, he you know, told me I kind of reminded of reminded him of himself when he was my age uh and we got to talking and he, he told me he's open to selling this particular property is 96 units in kind of like a c plus b minus area um it was a built in 79 uh units have not been renovated at all it was uh you know it, it definitely needed some work a couple new roofs some new siding and toured the deal um started talking and we ended up negotiating a price and uh, I, I told him, I said, I have never bought anything this big, but if you give me a shot, um, I'll prove to you that, you know, I can, I can take it down and I can make it happen. So, um, you know, it's kind of funny. I think you and I, uh, you and I read and met in a couple of uh, meetup groups around Michigan when I was living there. And, and we actually met out at this property a little, was that a year ago, maybe last sometime last year? Or yeah, you were still, you were still living there at the, at the I'm time. Still living there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that was cool. And now I'm on your podcast. So yeah, fun stuff. Small world. So did you, did you get owner financing with that or how did you finance that one? No. So, um, I went to a couple different lenders and we ended up doing a Freddie Mac small balance loan. And those are really good for one to $7 million loans. We went with uh, hunt on that one. Okay. Yeah. So, and, uh, so how hard was that process? Cause you needed key principles. Um, you know, well, you syndicated the deal, right? We syndicated. Yeah. So we did 506 B, uh, we syndicated the, the deal. I brought in a local, uh, operator who owned a couple thousand units. He was the main sponsor. He had obviously a lot of agency that experience. Um, so he did that and, and, um, he also provided a lot of management oversight and experience and he was, a um, became a partner with us on the deal. Yeah, I think, I think that's a key, key part there is, you know, I think so many people look at this when they get into it and they think I can't do that because I don't have 
all the things I need to close the deal, but almost nobody who buys an apartment of that size has all the pieces to do it. Correct. And, and that's the thing. And that's the beauty of putting it together is really you just have to educate yourself and, and go out there and work hard like you did. And uh, Exactly. Yeah. And I, th I think the key for a lot of people is starting a little smaller. I don't think that if you're just getting started out that you should go and do a hundred units or 200 units. I think some people try and go do that. I think you should start smaller because you'll be able to be a bigger piece of the pie. You'll be able to learn more instead of going and being a very small percentage of a very big deal. Um, I think it's better to go and do a smaller deal at first, uh, be a bigger piece of it, be kind of a lead, uh, lead role actively involved. And you can learn the whole process because there's, there's so many nuances. I mean, I've, I've, I've closed, like you mentioned about $40 million in multifamily properties now. And there's so many nuances just to the, the, the transaction process, the closing, the due diligence, um, you know, underwriting management, asset management, oversight. And if you have, a, you know, a bigger role in that on a smaller deal, just getting started out, you give yourself more leverage to then go in and, and, and do bigger deals and be a bigger part of it. You'll be able to talk the talk. You'll be able to understand how these operate so that you can get involved and be a more of a lead role on larger deals. So it's kind of my perspective. So what size do you consider a good entry point then? Uh, anything from, I mean, I started with a 12 unit. I think that's a little small, but I think anywhere from 20 to 50 units is a really good entry point for people. Um, it's something that um, you can, you know, really wrap your head around. It's not too complex. It's not so much money that, you know, let's say if something, God forbid, were to go wrong, that it's going to kill you. But, um, you know, a lot of people uh, don't realize the magnitude of these properties. You know, you're buying six, seven, eight, nine, ten, fifteen million dollar properties. Uh, and if stuff goes wrong and you're the sponsor, you're the one that falls back onto to, you know, put money in the deal or whatever. Um, and I've, I've seen scenarios where people have had to, had to shell out a lot of dough to keep deals alive because maybe they didn't buy them right or something goes wrong. And so I think it's good to start out on smaller scale. You really get that learning experience um, and, and get yourself up to speed so that you're more prepared to go and do bigger deals. Yeah. So backing up to, you know, the syndication and putting this deal, the 96 unit together. So do you mind sharing what your total raise was? Yeah, we raised 1.7 million. So how did you feel going into that before you did it? And how did the process go accordingly? Was it, was it as easy as you thought? Was it harder? I, <laughs> it was much, much, much harder than I thought it was going to be. It was definitely not easy. And to date, that equity raise is probably the hardest thing I've had to do um, in this industry in general. So I had raised about 300 grand uh, with my business partner when we bought the first 24 units and that was not very difficult um it it came together fairly easy but it, you know it wasn't simple because we didn't have a lot of family money we didn't have all the you know uh, a ton of relationships at first so um raising 1.7 million was definitely difficult and we made a lot of mistakes that i took with me and, and was able to correct and then use on future deals, which was great. And I could share some of those mistakes. For example, um, when we first did it, this is, and by the way, this is in 2016 or no, this is like mid 2017 before really before syndication was hyped up as this big thing. And before a lot of people knew about it. Um, and 
so we didn't really know all the best practices and processes and ways to, to do it. So for example, when we first pitched the deal to some investors, we just put a Dropbox link together with a bunch of photos, um, our underwriting model, uh, some, some, you know, basic due diligence stocks and, and maybe a very brief summary, but we didn't package it very well. And, and just the simple fact that we didn't package it very well, um, turns off a lot of investors. So we learned from that halfway through when we're like, we're not getting any traction. Um, we put together a really, you know, a nicer looking PDF. Uh, we call it an OM, uh, offering memorandum. And we shared that with invest, you know, potential investors to, to show them, you know, it, it, it's just a much cleaner way to present the deal. It's a nice presentation that shows the, the potential returns, the details of the deal and everything. So something like that um, really held us up in the beginning. Uh, you know, not having a track record made it difficult too. I think not, not having, you know, take, I think it made it easier that I'd done a couple smaller deals for sure. I had some experience, um, but not having done larger deals like that and being, you know, my age definitely made it a little bit more of a roadblock, but I, I just, I think the only way I did it was I powered through it. There really wasn't any secret to it. You just talked to more and more and more people and eventually, you know, was able to convince enough people to invest. That's awesome. Uh, so do you have any other, you said you had a few, do you have any other tips on, on that process? Yeah, it makes it a lot harder to raise money when you're chasing it. Um, when you have investors coming to you, like not nowadays it's a lot different. I've, you know, raised probably close to $10 million in capital at this point. So, um, it's it, when you're in that position and you're chasing capital, people can sense it. And, um, you know, if you're at all salesy about it, it people get turned off. Uh, so you definitely want to be in a position where you're, you know, we don't have to take anyone's capital. It's more of a, I don't want to say a, a privilege, but we're giving people the opportunity to invest with us. Right. Um, and, if you're out there and you're really gunning for it and trying to chase down capital and convince people to invest, most people get turned off by that. They definitely don't want to be pressured into it. And, and, and nowadays our, our approach is much more passive. It's, you know, we present an opportunity if somebody wants to invest or not, you know, they can, they can come in. I don't follow up. I don't do hardcore follow up. We don't, you know, we take it very easy and, 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 and that approach has actually helped us raise a lot more capital. Um, we have a lot more people that want to come into our deals. I think that's part of it is, is the approach we take has helped. Yeah. I, I think you're absolutely correct on, on that process. So, yeah. So, so let's talk about, did you have any issues with uh, the loan process that you could share? So that's usually a really high stress point for a lot of new people and experience. Oh yeah. Well. Yeah. I mean, it's very new. I'd never done an agency loan. I didn't know what it was going to entail. I knew there'd be a lot of boxes to check and, and as far as agency loans go, you know, in terms of Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae type of product, um, the, the Freddie Mac small balance loan is, I, I think, one of the easier ones to get. Uh, there's not as much um, that goes into it, but there's still, you know, they send you a big checklist and there's a lot of docs you got to send. You got to send all the personal financials of all the guarantors, you know, bank statements, uh, tax returns, all that stuff. You got to share financials uh, for the deal, rent roll. Um, you know, any of our due diligence work, they've got to, uh, you've got to oversee and manage, you know, title going on. Lender's going to send that an appraiser. Uh, so we got to prepare for that. 
um, you know, make sure that our underwriting, our rent caps and everything lines up and looks legitimate, have a good plan for renovating the property and show them that we have, you know, a good plan in place to go through and increase the rents and, and we're going to, you know, do X, Y, Z renovations. So working through all that is, is just a process. Um, the biggest hurdle I think for a lot of people is they're not timely enough. And I don't think they, they understand how important it is to be very quick on these things. The quicker you can get all of the stuff into the lender, the sooner they can put it together, package it and start underwriting it because they've got to take it to Fannie and get it approved or Freddie and get it approved Freddie Mac. So a lot of times because lenders have so many people sending them these deals, until they get all the stuff from you and check all those boxes, they're not going to make a ton of headway. They're going to wait till you get everything in. So if you have, you know, send them 80% of the documents and then the next 20% trickles in over the next two weeks, they're still going to take another two weeks or another week to finish and underwrite all that stuff. If you get it into them all right away, 100% of the stuff they need within that first week, then they can start hitting the ground running and underwriting it because they know it's not worth their time to dive in because they can't present it to Freddie until they have all the pieces of the puzzle together. They can't show up, uh, you know, with, they can't, sh you know, go into it blind. They need to have underwritten us as the sponsors and guarantors. They need to have underwritten the deal and they need to do all that stuff. So um, I think it's timeliness is huge. That kind of delayed us a little bit. I mean, we are on point, but just some things straggle and it makes it get a little behind. Um, another thing that came up was, very interesting is at closing or a, about a week out from where closing was supposed to be uh, we had a uh, lawsuit um, pop up the, uh, on the, the search that the lender does and it was a lawsuit from one of the previous tenants it wasn't even a tenant that lived there it was a previous tenant against the seller and it, it didn't it didn't include uh, the apartment community itself it didn't name the apartment community in the lawsuit it was specifically against the tenant and the seller and um for some reason it, you know we, we brought in for some reason the lender thought that it implicated them and that there might be some future liability and uh it clearly didn't if you look at it and so we had to bring in i mean i think i brought in like four or five attorneys we got on multiple conference calls and had to literally explain them write additional indemnification letters indemnifying them against any future lawsuit seller had to sign something just to make them comfortable and and uh, to be honest, it's such a such a simple to me, to me and to us and on the buyer side and the seller is such a simple thing that they weren't involved. But uh, the lenders doing their job; they're covering their bases. They want to limit exposure to liability. And essentially, at the twelfth hour, they said, "You know, look, we're not going to give you this loan unless you can, you know, prove to us that we don't have liability on this issue." And so we had to dive in and deal with that. And those kind of things come up often. Um, you know, it's, if you're a problem solver, it shouldn't worry you too much. I mean, I've little things like that come up all the time, uh, now in closings and it's, it's, it's just a part of the business. You have to deal with it. Um, but it's stressful when, you know, it's your first big deal and we had a hundred thousand dollars non-refundable on the line. Um, you know, it's, it's stuff that you've got to, you've got to learn by doing it. It's not something you learn in a book, you know? Yeah. So, hopefully that helps, but I think that's a good story and I think you, you hit on it, but almost all closings have a story like that. You know, that, that may be a unique situation to your property, but there's always some weird there's thing that pops always up. Something. So totally. I think, I think that's important because uh, I've heard people say like, wow, what, what does this story have to do with anything? That's never going to happen again. But 
Totally will. <laughs> Something very similar will, yeah. So Murphy's Law. A good, a good story. Yep. Um, so it might be better to talk about this later, but so what terms did you pick on your loan, um, you know, as far as defeasance and, you know, the length? Great question. Range? Yeah, great question. And it, and it turned out uh, being beneficial. Less. So we, uh, the, the loan terms that we went with, it was a 4.65% interest rate, 10-year term, um, three years interest only with uh, 80% loan to value. And instead of a, uh, we could have gotten, I think 15 to 20 basis points lower on the interest rate if we would have gone with a yield maintenance. I did some research and I just thought that, you know, if we want to refi in the first, because our plan was at first to refi, not sell it so quickly. We sold it within about um, just under two years. We wanted to refi and within a couple of years, get investors their money back and then hold it long term. Um, but if we wanted to do that and we have yield maintenance, it's going to cost a lot of money to refi and, and buy out and it might not be doable. So uh, for anyone who doesn't know, there's, there's essentially two main types of um, defeasance or interest prepayment penalties on, on loans. And um, one is just a basic, either a flat rate or a step down. And your lender might say, okay, maybe it's a bridge loan and you've just got a 1% fee uh, on the front end when you get the loan and 1% when you buy out, if you do it within the first you know, three or five years. Um, agency loans, typically it's either yield maintenance or step down. And the step down might be, um, uh, I'm just gonna write off some numbers. This corresponds to each year. It might be 5544433222211 or something like that for a 10 year loan. And basically that's the percent buyout rate of the remaining loan balance. So it might be 5% the first two years, 4% year three and four, and then it might go down to 3%. Um, and that's 3% of the remaining loan balance when you either refi or, or pay off that loan, essentially. It's a prepayment penalty. Um, and so yield maintenance, on the other hand, is just a calculation of how much interest they have received up to that point, how much interest is kind of remaining on the loan. And they also use, uh, you know, when you pay it off today's current rates uh, uh, to determine, um, you know, what your prepayment penalty is. You get a better interest rate on the overall interest rate of the loan, uh, but you have, typically it's a higher prepayment penalty. So if you plan on paying it off in the first three to four years, um, you're gonna pay a lot more in yield maintenance uh, than a, than a um, normally you're gonna pay a lot more in yield maintenance than a, uh, a step down. And that's also determined by what are today's current interest rates. Um, I don't know exactly how it's calculated, but you know, there's something uh, to be said for if, if interest rates go up a lot, you might have um, uh, a lower uh, prepayment penalty. If they go down, I think it's higher. So I, I don't know exactly how it's calculated, but that's, that's the gist of it. So we went, went with a step down, I guess, all in all. We went with a step down and it ended up we had to pay, we were still within the first two years, but we had to pay a 5% um, prepayment penalty. And it was 5% of, it's like $160,000. If we went with the yield maintenance, we might have had to pay $300,000. So um, it was a, it was a good call on our part. Yeah, that's, that's such a stressful decision to make, I think, uh, moving into it. Maybe, maybe not uh, for you anymore, but. No, it still is. I mean, you know, because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what your plan, if plans are going to change or it yeah. is. 
you're just trying to predict the future and you just can't. <laughs> it is, yeah. And I guess for me, and it's my advice for anybody, if you have the option to step down and it's 10 to 20 basis points higher, um, unless you absolutely know you're going to be holding this for a long time, um, I would I would prefer to go the step down, and that's what we've been doing. Um, just because, you know, especially if you're new to this, partnerships a lot of times end up splitting up people minds change market changes you know the the market's gone up so much we decided to sell and it just made sense so that's why we sold it we didn't plan on that originally um so it, it kind of saved us by having that fixed prepayment penalty so so now you've closed on and you know i've noticed you know all the training and all this stuff is always focused on getting the deal and there's really not a whole lot of education or knowledge to get on managing the asset, which is truthfully probably the most important part. Um, so tell me about how that transition worked. You know, that's all pretty new to you and you're trying to learn how to sure. manage this and what, what did you learn on that process? Yeah, very new to me. Um, you know, I'd never, I'd only managed those 24 units and that was still new to me within the first six, eight months of managing those when I bought this next deal. And, um, you know, I knew that property management wasn't my strong suit. Uh, we had an on-site manager full-time slash leasing agent and an on-site uh, maintenance person full-time. They worked, you know, 40 hours a week salaried. And, uh, I self-managed this deal. We didn't have a third-party management company. Somehow convinced the bank to let me self-manage. Uh, and I wanted to I wanted to learn it more and, and get really involved with management so that I could master it because I knew that that would be important for me going forward, uh, you know, just in terms of underwriting deals and, and asset management and overseeing these properties. So I moved on site. I took a two-bedroom that came vacant. It was really beat up, and I kind of tricked it out, renovated it. Um, I still paid rent. Uh, actually, I actually paid the highest rent of the property because I had the nicest renovated unit. But uh, it was, you know, I think I spent like ten, eleven thousand to renovate the unit, and I paid the unit was at eight fifty. Market was um, about a thousand for renovated, and I paid like twelve hundred. Uh, but I rented out a bedroom to a buddy of mine, so I had to pay half of that, and then my management fees almost, you know, tripled that. So I, I kind of house hacked it. And all my living expenses were paid for from the management fees, which was kind of nice. Um, and and I was able to spend a lot of time working with my on-site manager and maintenance guy, uh, and and really learning how does, you know, what goes on in the background of all these operations, right? When you have a hundred-unit property um, or bigger, there's a lot of things that go on. You know, we've got we've got all these contracts that need to be maintained and kept up on landscaping. You know, every year we want to requote those and make sure that we've got the best prices. You know, you start seeing what happens with uh, waste management contracts and and how you know tenants leave their couches out at at the dumpsters and then we get charged an extra $150 on each pickup uh, for or tenants just leaving all this junk outside times five dumpsters. Sometimes that happens. We get charged an extra $700 in a month for just all these people's crap left out. So you start seeing these things that you really don't see at a high level and, and it adds up. And so I've, I've, I've learned a lot about, you know, better managing expenses. Um, I learned the unit renovation process. Uh, um, I got pretty good at that, you know, in terms of, um, you know, we oversaw 40 of the units that we renovated and I learned a lot of what not to do, uh, for sure. 
I learned a lot of what to do. And I, I've kind of been able to master and break down the cost of each of those things, um, you know, from appliances to countertops to resealing uh, bathtubs to replacing a tub surround to, you know, installing all fixtures, vinyl flooring, and, and being really hands-on allowed me to learn all that stuff, which was really good. So um, I created a lot of systems. I don't plan on continuing to do management on my own. Um, now that we sold that property, I have all third-party management on everything else. And uh, I don't plan on self-managing again for a while, but it was a really good experience and, and helped me to better know how to manage future properties or asset manage future properties. Yeah, I imagine the education from that is uh, just priceless. And not, totally. and not many people can do that, you know? So if I got one, I can't do that. I have- Yeah, you got a family. Yeah, yeah. And I got my own, my own house. I can't move into an apartment. So you kind of had a, yeah. a unique advantage uh, and, and I wouldn't do it again. I mean, you know, it was a B minus property. It's not the nicest place to live in, but I made it kind of, you know, home and, and I didn't tell any residents that I was an owner, you know, if they heard about me or saw me in the office, I'm the regional manager because I don't want people knowing that I'm the owner. So um, try to keep low key, but yeah, there are definitely a few times where people knocked on my door and tried to complain about stuff and I had to just, I just <laughs> send them to the manager, but it's uh, some fun stories. Yeah. But that's awesome. Yeah, and I, I've I've had the pleasure of watching some of the I, the one that comes to mind is the the U-Haul that took down the parking structure. Yeah, I was just gonna mention that. That's a funny story. Yeah, there was a we have parking carports, covered parking, and uh, somebody backed into one and totally messed it up. The whole uh, channel, the top rivets, and one of the uh, to the posts got got jacked up from them backing up into it and. You know, they, they kind of took off. My manager said they saw a U-Haul driving away. And then um, late at night, I went out and it was like 11 at night. And I was kind of just driving around the property. Sometimes I do that to just check on stuff. And um, I did a lap and found uh, uh, the U-Haul and saw the damage. I got a picture of it. And we ended up, we ended up nabbing them and getting the, their insurance to cover it. So um, that was a funny story. But yeah, if... Uh... I don't know. Is that posted on your Facebook group or just your personal page? It was. Yeah. It probably, it's probably pretty far back. It'd take a while to find it, but it is posted in my Facebook group for sure. Yeah. I think, I think if you have time, I think you should search for it and look for it and uh, yeah, download it, that. It really kind of gives you an a real inside view of some of the drama that, that really exactly. Exists. You know, and it went by really fast. Like I lived there for eight months and then I moved here to Austin. Um, it was a good experience. I'll always remember it. And uh, I do kind of miss it. It was really fun. Um, uh, it went by really fast. So uh, I'm definitely just trying to take everything I learned from that and keep applying it. Well, let's move to the sale. You've got, so you're managing it along. Are you actively looking for a buyer or did somebody approach you? So we decided that because the market had, had grown so much and gotten so much better in this area that we would start looking for a uh, potential buyer. We said, Hey, if we get this price, like we want, we bought it for 4.2 million. We are all in at five. And I think we said, if we got 6.5 million, we'd sell it, which got a, you know, I can't share the return, but I got a good return to our investors. Um, and we talked to one or two brokers and this was, partially a mistake uh, that, I, that I'm willing to share. Um, I talked to first broker and I said, Hey, you know, if we get this number, we're open to selling it. Um, you know, do you want to shop it to some specific buyers? We didn't want it to get blasted out to everybody. 
because and I'll, I'll explain that why in a second. Um, so he gave me a list of some buyers. He was like, here's three or four buyers. I'm going to go share with them. He gave me a, an agreement. He said, if I bring, you know, one of these buyers to get this offer uh, at this price, you, you know, if you, and you accept it, um, I got a 2% commission or something like that. Um, I talked to another broker and so this one, instead of giving me a list, he didn't, he told me confidence. I'd bought one of my first deals from him, told me that he would just shop to a couple of people. And apparently they blasted out to a, not their whole list, but a, a larger list of people than I would, would have liked. And uh, my mistake was uh, I didn't have him sign an agreement saying, hey, these are the specific buyers that I can go and share it with. Um, so should have done that. But they sent it out to a lot of people and it kind of soured it because uh, then the, another broker calls me and says, hey, you know, I've, I've got my guy saying another broker is shopping a deal to them. What's going on here? And it can kind of ruin it if you don't keep a good tight lid and control it because just like anything in sales, your best shot at selling something is putting it out to market, going and collecting a bunch of bids and kind of bidding them against each other, at least in apartments right now. And, and then, you know, doing a best and final and, and getting the best buyer with the highest price in there. Um, since we didn't want to actively market it, you know, it, 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 it doesn't help that buyers kind of see it being shot from multiple sources. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't keep that good line of communication um, with the, the broker to their specific buyer. Um, because when a broker's going to a buyer and they can say, hey, I've got a completely off-market deal. This guy says he'll sell at this price. It's a good deal. There's some meat on the bone, which there was. Um, you know, that sounds great. But then once they start seeing it from a couple other people, they're like, hey, is this deal really off-market? What's going on here? Um, so that was a mistake. But we, we ended up having um, a third broker take a look at it. And he uh, uh, told me, he's like, he's a really good broker in Michigan. Um, and he told me, he's like, I've got, I've got your buyer. So he sent me a list, of a couple of buyers to give a shop at two. The first one he went to, he ended up getting 6.7 million. So 200 above our price, hundred thousand dollars hard from day one and uh, closed it in 60 days. So um, yeah, it worked out. It went well, pretty smooth. Uh, they had extended about 30 days, but you know, we were, we were okay with it. And um, they ended up closing about two, two weeks ago. So, so that's a fantastic story. It's, I love hearing that. It's a, yeah. I mean, there's all these mistakes that happen along the way. Right. But you just got to learn from them. Well, and I think, I think that's why I like talking to people like you is there are mistakes and it's not my, my whole theme I've always said is it's not as easy as everybody would like to you to say it is, you know, if, if you just listen to pick your, you know, just, it sounds like, you know, today I'm going to start, I'm going to own it. I'm going to be a millionaire by like Wednesday. And then, yeah. you know, it just doesn't go like that. No. Yeah. So I think it shocks a lot of people. And that's what bothers me. I think is a lot of people that don't want to put in the effort are brought into it. And so people like you and myself and, and many other people who are committed to the effort, then that's fine. But I worry about the people that have no intention of doing all the work that's required. Yeah, they don't. And, and then the tough part is, you know, a lot of people don't talk about the, the mistakes enough. And it's always everything always talks just about the positives. And, um, you know, I think that's tough. And people don't really understand what they're getting into. So and they think it's, I don't think they, I think a lot of people just think it's a simple process that you could buy into or get a course on and like, oh, I'm just gonna learn and go do it. 
they don't think of the responsibility. You know, you're going and getting a multi-million dollar loan. You're raising hundreds of thousands, if not millions from investors. Uh, and you're having to manage this property, make sure it goes well. You're now an owner of a $7 million property. And you have a responsibility to yourself, yourself and your investors to make sure everything goes well. And there's a lot to it. You're not just going to plug and play, go buy a course and then, you know, own $10 million property. It just doesn't happen like that. You know, there's, there's a lot that goes into it. So. Which, uh, so that, that's a good point too, to, to make. So I think a lot of people that I see getting into this and it's probably one of my, uh, favorite complaints or that I can't stand is you see people go, you know, how do we evaluate a property? It's so simple. It's just, it's NOI times cap rate and that's it. And there is, I have never seen an apartment purchased on that system in my life. And I doubt that any have. So you have uh, a deal analyzer that you have out that kind of helps get into some of the weeds of how to really get to that offering price. Uh, do you want to talk yeah. about that a little bit and how you, yeah. how you evaluate and get to the price? Absolutely. So um, I built this deal analyzer started from, you know, about three years ago from scratch and it started very simple. And the more and more I got into, you know, analyzing more deals, I would add more features to it and kind of came down to this, this version. I've got it to today. And it's really simple. All the, all the inputs are pretty much consolidated to one page. Um, there's a couple of others throughout, but uh, all the inputs are blue cells, everything else you really don't have to touch. You put in what you want your rents to be. You input your, your operating expense uh, assumptions. You input your purchase price, your financing details, what structure you want. Let's say you're raising money and you have investors. You want to do a 6% preferred return and a 50-50 split over that. You can do that. If you have an 8-pref and an 80-20 split, you can change that up. If you want to do no preferred return and just a 70-30 split, you, know, you can play with all that. Um, and I just created this model to make it simple and easy because I saw all these other models people have and, and, you know, they kind of do the same things, but they're just not laid out nice where it looks clean and it's easy to follow and read. So, so I've created this model and it's worked great. We analyze, you know, about a dozen deals a week using it. Um, and I've had, you know, well over a hundred people that have purchased it from me. I also have a more simplified version of it on my website for free. And so there's a paid version and a free version and you can check out both. So um, those are both on my website. So tell me, tell me your version uh, of how do you determine the value of the value add portion of a, an apartment? So I'll go into the analyzer and I'll fill in everything, all my assumptions um, in terms of what, you know, my operating expenses, what are taxes going to potentially be reassessed to, uh, what are my closing costs going to look like? and the structure with investors and all that. And then I'll take normally what's their asking price or what price do they want to get for the property. I'll input that and I'll see what the returns look like. Um, and then from there, let's say, you know, I normally like to look for an 8% average annual cash on cash and overall about a 15 to 17 IRR over a three to five year hold. And um, let's say I, I put in their purchase price and I'm at a 10% IRR. Um, and a 5% average cash on cash. I will just keep dropping that price down until I hit my range of, of returns. And then from there, uh, that's where I'm going to put my offer in at. Um, you know, and I'll go in and tweak it. And, and I might say, well, if I renovate two bedrooms, I might get $150 rent bump. If I renovate one bedrooms, 
I might only get a $75 rent bump based on the market. So I might lean more heavily on two bedroom renovations in my underwriting, um, stuff like that. And I'll just kind of tweak it and play around with it until I feel comfortable with it. till it's at a good point. And, and I feel like, um, you know, confident about where the numbers are at. Uh, but I don't dwell on it too much. I think you can definitely get into overanalyzing. Once everything's in there, I trust the numbers. I'm, you know, I go through and double check everything, but I trust that the numbers are what they are. If it's not cash flowing at a certain number, I'm not going to go there. If it's not hitting my investor return thresholds, I'm, I'm not going to go there. If it doesn't meet the stress test that I do, you know, I drop occupancy and my, I lose my debt service coverage ratios. I'm not going to go there. So um, there's all these factors that I take into account and I've done it. I've done so many of these now it's kind of second nature. Uh, but you know, if anyone wants to learn uh, along with mine, I have some videos on my website and, and, and my YouTube channel that you can see of me walking through how to analyze a deal and you can check it out. Yeah, I think that, I think that would be helpful. So, uh, why don't you, uh, tell us your, your website and, and how people get a hold of you so we can find those videos and, and maybe reach out to you if we need to. Yeah. So my website is obsidiancapitalco.com. Uh, obsidian is spelled O-B-S-I-D-I-A-N, like the rock. And uh, my email, david at obsidiancapitalco.com. You can find me on Instagram uh, at Real Estate Jedi. You can find me on Facebook, just search David Tupin. Uh, and then, yeah, I would love to connect. Well, fantastic. Uh, I appreciate you coming on and uh, we'll hopefully be talking again. Thanks, Reed. Good All right, time. Thank you, David.